The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we are going to be talking about Freemasons and Masonic Records, and my guest is Alvie Davidson. I met Alvie a few years ago at one of the genealogy conferences. Uh, uh, Probably it was the National Genealogical Society Conference. And uh, so I've seen him at conferences here and there. And uh, one time I found out that he was a Mason and it sparked an idea of talking about Freemasonry and Masonic records on the blog, uh, blog talk show, the forget me Not hour. Uh, so I invited LV to come on as a guest and here he is today. Um, as I said, LV uh, is a Mason, and so he's going to tell us more about uh, what he did to become a Mason. He's going to talk about the history of Freemasonry, and then he's going to talk about uh, the records that lodges have created and how we can find those records. So, Elvi, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for inviting me. I certainly hope I can enlighten a few people, maybe more than I understand. I'll, I'll enlighten. <laughs> I think we, I think we will be enlightened. It is, it is, and I, and I should say that I have experienced uh, researching Masonic records when I was researching my Wilcox ancestors in Orwell, Vermont. I had heard uh, family lore that uh, they're uh, up in the third floor of the house where they lived that they held Masonic meetings up there, and so when I was researching, I asked, are any of these Masonic records? still around and sure enough they were in the local bank's vault preserved and I was given access to them so uh so that that's part also thought uh you know the show would be wonderful for people to know how to obtain these records so Elvie that was just a long introduction so thank you for joining me um so as as we uh start our show. Uh, will you tell us about your uh, yourself, how you, uh, where you were born, where you were raised, your education, and your careers? Well, I was born in North Alabama, near the city of Decatur, Alabama, and uh, lived there until I was about maybe four years old. And my father, following the World War II closing, moved us to Florida to look for work, and he brought us down to Central Florida. And um, I was raised in a place called Arcadia, Florida, which is a little cow town, a rodeo town, and I got my high school education there and was unable to pursue higher education other than that, and uh, I took a job, got to work, made a living, and I uh, retired from a company here in town where I live now, Lakeland, Florida, from a company called Owens, Illinois, which made glass bottles. I was one of their supervisors. And uh, during all this procedure, I was also a member of the Naval Reserve, which is where I got my expertise in the field of private investigative work. 
I learned to do background investigations on the staff and the officers and the enlisted people to get their security clearances. And at that time, I was given a top-secret security clearance, and I went right on to uh, move that into a avocation, which is now I am a licensed private investigator, a Florida certified investigator here in Florida, and a professional genealogist. And I say I've always told people, putting those two hats on at the same time makes me a formidable, formidable foe. <laughs> yeah. So, which came first, the PI or the uh, genealogy? Oh, the genealogy. I started the genealogy back in the early 60s and on a challenge from my then mother-in-law who kept bragging about her Georgia roots. And I said to myself, that couldn't be right. They, these are just country folks. They couldn't have all that. And when I did the research in the local historical library, I found far more than they even knew. That They, they came from very deep roots in Georgia all the way back to Virginia. And the originator of that family uh, took in papers back to Washington, from George Washington back to England to get his ordination in the uh, Episcopal Church. So uh, that's what got my genealogy started, and I, I sort of got the bug. And uh, <laughs> I went on to become a, a – I was a certified genealogist for 15 years, and this past time I did not renew that, but it has not hindered my research. I'm still just as good as ever. Okay. All right. And so then – and then how how did Freemasonry come into the picture for you? Well, in the early part of the 1970s, I was in one of the Naval Reserve units in Winter Haven, Florida, and a number of our men were Masons. I noticed they were wearing their Mason ring, and I heard them talking a little bit, and I just inquired. And you have to inquire. The Masons do not go out and solicit membership. And I inquired, and uh, in the late 1974 time frame, I was then single. I uh, filled out my application and uh, was uh, taken in by the Lakeland Chapter 91, which was in downtown Lakeland, where I was living at the time, and started my uh, process. Uh, the three steps of masonry, first of all, is uh, entered apprentice, which is your initial step, and then uh, fellow craft, which is the second step or the third degree, and then the, the raising to the master mason, which is the third degree. And each one of these requires an education, so to speak. Uh, it's where you're taught the craft of the masonry, and you have to learn it, memorize it, and recite it back to the lodge verbatim. And most of the time, this is done in groups so that Ten people don't have to do but just one-tenth of it. But all of mine except my master mason was done by me alone. And that was quite a challenge to be able to do a 15-minute recitation from memory. But what threw a kink in that works, I got married in the middle of it. And shortly after getting married, I had a terrible motorcycle wreck. And my teacher came to the hospital and was teaching my degree work in the hospital room. And we would always, it was a private hospital room. And I got my fellow craft degree taught right there in that hospital bed. And when I got out, I returned to the lodge, and then I went on to my master mason, or third degree, and recited that back to the lodge with another man. And it was interesting. I, I got my third degree, and shortly after that, I was asked if I was, might be interested in going to the 32nd degree, which was Scottish Rite, 
I had a choice of York Rite or Scottish Rite. Scottish Rite is done on two consecutive weekends, and York Rite is done over a period of weeks and weeks and weeks, going to the lodge and reciting it and so forth. So I chose Scottish Rite, which was very interesting to me. And if I could tell you all that I learned at that 32nd degree, you would understand why some of the men who are Masons are what they are because of the things that you're taught in that. And in my mind, I thought back now, some of these things I'm being taught, I know people who are Masons who shouldn't be Masons because of their lives. And it, it troubled me a little bit, but be that as it may, okay. that, so, I uh, reached have, the Scottish uh, Rite level. All right, I have a couple of questions. So how generally, how long does it take to get to the third degree? It took. You can do it as fast as you want. Usually it takes three months, but because of my blur, blur, blip in the accident, it took me about six months. Okay. That's how and fast then, you want to memorize it. Okay, and then you can stop there? You can stay at third degree? Oh, yeah. That's called Blue okay. Lodge. You can stay right there. You don't have to go any further if you don't want to, and many people do that. They just stop right okay. there, and that's it. Okay, and then what is the difference between York and Scottish at the 32nd degree? It's just they have different languages and different ways of teaching, and the Scottish Rite is a little bit more outgoing than York Rite is. You very seldom ever see anybody involving in York Rite openly. You don't. It's just not something you see. But like here in Lakeland, we have a Scottish Rite club, which is members of the 32nd degree members that want to come in and uh, fellowship with other people, and they have dinners and they put on uh, programs and parades and for and the money raised is done is sent to Scottish Rite Hospital in Tampa. Okay. So that's okay. that's one of their their uh, activities. Well, that that's interesting because I I have heard of Scottish Rite and I had not heard of York Rite. So that that makes sense that you said the Scottish is more outgoing. Oh yeah. And they they usually wear some of their beautiful regalia, their their hats and their fezes, and uh, whenever they go out in the public, they're wearing their apron. They're, they're, you, when you get to become a master mason, you're given a leather apron with a Scottish I mean, with a um, Masonic symbol on the front of it, and theoretically, you're supposed to be buried with that apron. That's that's your passage, in other words. Okay. All right. And have you found that any of your ancestors were Masons? Unfortunately, I did not find any of them that were Masons. Uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather on my mother's side was a member of the Woodman, Woodman of the World, which is a similar organization, but not they're not Masons. Uh, if it hadn't been for my wife's great-great-grandfather being the master of the lodge where he was a member, we would never have found his death because the lodge burned and the records of the county burned. But in the local newspaper, there was a memorial to William Hatcher in 1850, and it gave the date of his death, and they they uh, really eulogized him. He must have been a great man. And that's where we got proof of his death. Very interesting. So to give us um, background on the Masons, will you just briefly tell us about the, the history of Freemasonry, kind of in a nutshell? Um, well, in a nutshell, Freemasonry well, Masonry started just like it sounds, people who laid blocks. That's where you get the term Masonry, and it started way back in antiquity. And the 
trade secrets of laying blocks without the need of mortar and so forth was a trade secret and was kept a secret. That's where the terminology secret masons come from. But whenever education came along and people uh, became pretty smart, they didn't need to rely on antiquity. They were able to do it by math and by geometry and so forth. And that's where they no longer needed the trades from the Masons, as we know the Freemasons of years ago. And uh, in the beginning of the 1700s, they began to come over to this country, and they they became a more of a social organization and a, a fraternal brotherhood. Uh, there are a number of YouTube videos on YouTube about uh, the origins of Freemasonry and uh, that's why they are who they are, and if you know them quite well, you will know that they are men of quality, men of stature. And there is one other degree after you reach the 32nd degree, and that's the 33rd degree, that uh, you receive that only when it's bestowed upon you. The story is if you ask for it, you'll never get it. But if you've done something very large in life, you've helped a lot of people, you've done a lot of good in life, the state organization will bestow upon you that degree of a 33rd degree. One example of this, you know, I'm sure you know who Gene Autry is. Yes. The actor, he was a 33rd degree Mason. And there are many men who have achieved that position because of their they're good in life that they've done. They've helped other people. Uh, here in our town where I live, we have a grocery store chain that's all over the southeast. And one of the co-owners of that company originally was a man named William Mercer Hollis. He was a 33rd degree mason because of all the good that he did for the community. He was he rose to the highest rank of masonry in this state, the Sovereign Grand Inspector General. And man, you see him in his full dress regalia. He was awesome. He was awesome. Okay. <laughs> I had a memory so, that I wouldn't believe. So as you're you're talking about uh, the 33rd degree Masons, uh, I'm thinking, what is the mission of Freemasonry today? The majority of the organization is devoted to helping others in many, many, many different ways uh, through donations to muscular dystrophy and to childhood diseases and to mental retardation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this, what I said, this Scottish Rite Hospital in Tampa, uh, years ago one of our housekeepers had a granddaughter who had severe scoliosis. We got in touch with the Scottish Rite Hospital, and they took her over there and they straightened her spine completely by surgery from front and back. And she looks just like a normal person today. And that was a gift to her from the Freemasonry. She did not have to pay a penny to stay in that hospital and have the surgery performed. That's just a part of masonry. They, they, do, they, they do good works for other people that people okay. can't afford it. Okay, and then then going back in time, uh, you know, I I know that some of our founding fathers were Masons. I believe Ben Franklin was George Washington. Uh, oh, yeah. You, you know about that. Um, so, and it was you, I, th- I think you said it was more of a social organization. So, what was the mission for 
of Freemasonry then in the 1700s and 1800s? It was for a brotherhood, a brotherhood of strength. Um, people have said that you become a Freemason, you want to use your masonry to gain things in life. That's a falsehood. Uh, I have never, never used my Masonic organization to uh, gain anything. I use it only for the purpose of associating myself with men of like uh, standings in life. Uh, there's a there was a number of people who were masons in our history. John Hancock, uh, John Paul Jones, uh, Paul Revere was a mason, and many of those who were not masons were associating with masons. Uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Benjamin Franklin, of course, John Hancock, a number of those were were Freemasons, and they they did good for other people. And that's our whole goal in life is to do good for other people and to to uh, be kind to others in any way you can. And when you meet another Mason and you talk for a little while, you, you don't have to ask him if he's a Mason. You can know he's a Mason. It's just the things he says, uh, some of the phrases he uses, uh, or uh, some of the things you might ask him, he reveals that he's a Mason. And... They're good guys, good guys. <laughs> they sound like good guys. So do you think with you know, so many of our founding fathers being Masons that, that impacted the founding of our country in any way? Oh, absolutely. Now, Freemasonry has never put itself out as a, as a religious organization, but our country was founded on Christian principles, and the Masonic order is based upon Christian principles. And if I could could go into some of that, which I can't, some of the questions that you're asked going into the, the Scottish Rite evolves from your Christianity, your um, religious upbringing, whether it be Christians or Jewish or whatever, that your, your devotion to what's right is what's going to make you stand out. Okay. And... In addition to the Scottish Rite, the York Rite, do we, do we have going from third degree to thirty-second degree? We have we have all the other degrees in there, and people can stop wherever they wish. Well, the, the when you go into the Scottish Rite or the York Rite, you go through the other degrees, the, the fourth degree through the thirty-second degree, all at one spasm. In other words, you don't stop and pause at the twenty-eighth degree, but you go all the way up to the top. And there are a lot of other appendant organizations that have come from after you reach that 32nd degree. Uh, a good example of this in the Pennsylvania area, there's an organization called the Tall Cedars of Lebanon. They're called appendant organizations. And they do many things just like um, we do here at the Scottish Rite in uh, Tampa. They, they work with uh, invalid children. They work with hospitals and clinics to, to try to better them, and they do things to raise money for these organizations. Uh, and I, I met a gentleman one time when I was up in the Pennsylvania area, and I didn't have to ask him if he was a Mason. I knew he was a Mason when we talked for a few minutes, and he was a member of the Tall Cedars of Lebanon. And he was he was top-notch, top-notch guy. He was a member of the uh, Naval Reserve where I was doing my tour of duty up there. 
Okay. And you mentioned uh, that the state organization will choose 33rd degree Mason. So is there, I guess, how, how are, is it organized? You know, we, we have the lodge on the local level, and then is there an overarching uh, body that oversees all of the lodges? Yes, each lodge has its own staff, or as you they call it, going up the chairs through the lodge. Uh, the the um, uh, different places you go up until you reach become master of the lodge, and you're you're referred to as the grand master of the lodge or the worshipful master of the lodge. You have reached the final chair, and you'll serve that chair for a year. Now, some people, if they're have done an enormous amount of good for that, somebody will recommend them to the state organization, which is located in Jacksonville, and they will begin to consider, is this person worthy of 33rd degree? And Bill Hollis is the only one that I've personally known as a 33rd degree, um, and he he uh, became the Grand Master of the state and went on up through the levels of until he reached the Grand Sovereign Inspector General of the State of Florida, where he held for a number of years, and his um, he, he died in 1990. But I think his last activity with the Grand Lodge was in 1988. A superb individual. They made a medallion with his image on it, and I just found one of those on the internet this morning that I could buy for ten bucks. <laughs> So then is there a national organization that oversees the states, and then is there an international organization uh, that oversees worldwide? Well, as far as an international organization, no, there isn't. Um, each each state has its own government, in other words, almost like a church. Uh, they're, they're independently uh, managing their own affairs. Now, if I'm visiting in New Orleans, which I did several years ago, and I learned that there was a lodge meeting adjacent to the place where I was attending, I found out they were meeting the same evening we were there. So I went over there and uh, identified myself, showed my membership card. You have to go through a brief ritual so they'll know that you are a, a free and accepted Mason. And I got in and went through their meeting and everything, and you're just like another brother to them. And my my first cousin up in Alabama, he was a uh, master of his lodge, and he wanted me to go to the meeting with him up there, but I was never there when he was, whenever the meeting was being held. That There's no national organization that governs the, the 50 states, in other words. Each okay. territory or region has its own government. And then back in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, were the lodges acting independently uh and you know we weren't states at that time uh so they were independent lodges right and some of them had titles that reflected their area uh i'll use example baltimore lodge might have been there before maryland became a state but it was just baltimore lodge uh and sometimes lodges go out of existence terminology is they go dark so the records of that lodge are sent either to a nearby lodge or to the state organization where they're preserved, and that happened to the lodge where I'm a member now. It went dark about 1910 or 1920, and its records were absorbed by the Tampa Lodge, 
Later, when this lodge came back to light, they sent their records back to the Kathleen Lodge 338. So that's where they are now. And I was okay. given the opportunity to, do, to look at those records. All right. We, we, actually, we're going to talk about records when we come back from uh, the break. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you are listening on a blog talk radio, you will be able to access the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. Uh, There are wonderful shows uh, for more than six years. Uh, I first started broadcasting the Forget-Me-Not Hour on WHVW radio in Poughkeepsie, live in Poughkeepsie, and then rebroadcasting that recording on Blog Talk Radio. So we go back a a number of years, uh, starting with the WHVW interviews, and they're all in the the Forget-Me-Not Hour archives. Uh, So we have New York-related, the first Wednesday of the month, and then whatever strikes my fancy for the third Wednesday of the month. Uh, So take advantage of that. And I'm particularly pointing out the archives today because this show is the last show. Um, I'm uh, taking an indefinite hiatus. I don't know uh, if or when I will be back with Forget-Me-Not Hour. Um, so I do want to emphasize to take advantage of the archives uh, because there are timeless shows there. Um, so today, uh, our last show, we're talking about uh, Freemasons and Masonic records. Uh, my guest is Ali Davidson. Um, so, as, Ali, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I found, uh, you know, through family lore that uh, uh, the Masons were 
uh, holding their lodge meetings at, at on the third floor of the house where my ancestors lived. In the research that I did, I actually found it wasn't my Wilcox ancestors. It was a son-in-law who owned the house after uh, my, my Wilcox family uh, was there. Um, so he had the meetings in the 1870s there. And then when I was looking in the records uh, for Independence Lodge in Orwell, Vermont, I found that not my Wilcox ancestors, but their wives, uh, fathers and brothers, were members of the Independence Lodge. And the first record I found was Doris Bascom. Uh, and he was uh, in 1815 uh, with his first petition accepted. And then I found in 1816 that he was raised to the sublime degree of master. Um, so very, very simple records. So with our lodges, um, what types of records are we going to find? Well, to be, to be very pointed about records, uh, <clears throat> records are kept at the local lodge, and also copies of them go to the state lodge uh, under the leadership of the uh, uh, Grand Lodge's Grand Secretary. And if you are here in Florida, if somebody wanted a copy of my original application, they would not write to my local lodge. They would write to the state uh, Grand, uh, Grand Lodge and to the Grand Secretary and ask for a copy of my application which would not be released to them unless they were a family member. But if the more recent member applications contain more information because I had to put down my father and mother's name and other family members, which at that time was my brother, and the older applications didn't do that. They simply asked for your your name and your residence, and that was just about it. It didn't go into a lot of genealogy and that's what some people get disappointed when they look for Masonic records. There is a little card uh, that tells very little about them, but it does tell, tell you on that card uh, when you started your degree work uh, and your entered apprentice and your fellow craft, and then when you were raised to the uh, to the level of Master Mason. That's noted on the card, and it usually will say something about who were the persons who educated you. Uh, I have never reached back and tried to get any real old ones uh, simply because I've just ha never had a need for it. But that's w what you're going to find in uh, in the uh, Masonic records. Okay, so it's basically keeping track of, of the people and their progress in the degrees. Correct, correct. Um, I... Shortly after I became a Master Mason, I was asked to serve on the um, or the the uh, staff that examined applications and questioned the applicants and to see if they were truthful about their application. If we personally felt they were worthy of coming into the lodge, and we did turn down two or three of them because at that time I had some insides with the law enforcement in this county. And I learned that some of them had a pretty rough background. Therefore, we just turned them down. But if their record was clean, they lived a good, clean life, we would recommend them on up. And then the, the uh, lodge officers would contact them again and set them up with a instructor. And uh, their instructor would teach them all the way through their three degrees. But that was the, that was the methodology that they used to get members in but as I said before, 
Masons don't go out soliciting members. It's just it's just a no-no. You want mm-hmm. to become a member of a lodge, you ask to, to join the lodge. And that's okay. I asked one of the members of my Naval Reserve unit, and he was the one who taught me all the way through my uh, degree work. So Great. the the, de- the degree work that you do today is is that what my ancestor Doris Bascom did in in eighteen fifteen as well? Yes, they had they, there was a booklet that they were given that had the three degrees written in it, and they they had to memorize that. And you couldn't take that booklet in with you when you were going to the terminology of return it to the lodge. You had to uh, recite it from absolute memory. And that's why I said if you had ten men going in at the same time, only you only had to do one-tenth of it because you did it like in rotation. And you had to be all practicing at the same time. But I did all of mine except my master mason by myself. Was I ever nervous? <laughs> that, that sounds like quite a feat. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I have my you know Doris Bascom there in in the Orwell, Vermont, and uh, you know, I, he's his first petition is accepted, and then he's raised to the sublime degree of master. How how do I decipher the records? How do I know what that is uh, when I see it in the records? That's where you can probably get a lot from McKay's book. Of, of the language and the words and the terminologies that were used uh, to to find your way through some of these uh, like the sublime degree and why do they call them worshipful master and et cetera. Just you you can learn a lot from McKay's book. Okay, and what uh, years is the ago name I of the used book? to have one. The the um, what was it? I had it written down here somewhere. Yeah, the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry and its Kindred Sciences. It was originally published in 1912. Okay, and, and McKay's first name is? Uh, I think it's Abner G. Hold on a second. Let me get my paper out here again. I had it right in front of me, and I laid it down. Alvy, don't lay something down if you want it again. <sighs> His first name is um, Albert G. McKay, M. McKee, I should say, M-A-C-K-E-Y, McKee, Abner G. McKee. Okay, and you you said that this, uh, Alvy and I talked before the show started, uh, so you said that this is probably the best resource? The very best, yes. Uh, It's claimed to be the best one that's ever been written. Uh, Of course, on the other side of the coin, there are people who oppose masonry because they they look at it as secret. Nothing should be secret. Well, masonry is not secret. There's only two things in masonry that is secret, and that is the password and the uh, Masonic handshake. Everything else is open and public. Absolutely. And I don't know where people get the idea of it's, it's a secret organization. It was when it started back in antiquity. It was a trade organization that was uh, that passed down from father to son, and from generation to generation on how they did their masonry work, and it was kept secret. But the the terminology "secret masonry" has has long since died. 
and the and the records obviously are open to the public. I do want to point out um, when I was doing research for uh, my Wilcox family in Vermont, um, my uh, great great great-grandfather Linus Wilcox was a member of the Vermont Assembly in the 1830s. And there actually was a political party called the Anti-Masonic Party. Um, and I asked a historian what this party was all about. And he said the Masons were considered elitist. And so this political party formed to counteract the perceived elitism of, of the Masons in Vermont. And I, and I don't know if this was a uh, countrywide movement, or if it was just particular to Vermont. So it's it's interesting that perception of of Masons uh, that that people have. I've never seen anything here in Florida or in the Southeast that would be considered an, a like a political party of anti-Masonry. Um, we have um, we've had uh, many uh, people, mostly in, in churches. Uh, matter of fact, the the early Baptists were very much anti-Mason, and they, and I think it might have been evolving around that they were elitist and they thought they were uh, secret organizations, and it it was just um, the thing. And uh, I know that a lot of Roman Catholics are anti-Masonry, but I know many ministers in the Baptist Church who are Masons. They don't mm -hmm. flaunt it, they don't publicize it, but they are. Well, my people in Vermont were Congregationalists, uh, and, and I, my Wilcox, as I said, they they were not members of of the lodge, and and I don't know why. They were also very staunch Congregationalists, um, but the in-laws, who also were Congregationalists, were and deacons in the church. They were also Masons, um, mm -hmm. and then in upstate New York or the central New York in the Mohawk Valley. In the 1750s and 60s, a lodge formed uh, in Johnstown, which is where Sir William Johnson, who was the uh, superintendent of Indian Affairs for the British, uh, there was a lodge there as well. And, and these men uh, were Anglican at, at the time, and then uh, also some uh, other Protestant uh, groups. Uh, so just just kind of historical perspective there. Um, so I, I actually, we digress, but it's fascinating history. Um, so, LV, how do we find the records for a lodge today? Well, first of all, you have to determine if there is a lodge in your community. The one here where I live in a small community called Kathleen, Florida, we have a lodge, which is um, oh, about a mile and a half from my house where I'm a member. And I'm, I'm termed a card-carrying member. I attend very few meetings. But uh, you can go to the building, and there's a sign on the building who, who to contact if you want to know more about the lodge. And I get their uh, their letter every month from the lodge, meeting uh, the uh, names of the officers and so forth. It comes to my post office box here in Kathleen. And there are sometimes lodges, two or three lodges meeting in the same buildings, 91, which is the one where I originally joined downtown, there's two different lodges meet in that building. And again, on the front of the building, there's a sign that tells you who to contact if you're interested. And it's not secret. There's a big Masonic symbol, the uh, the trowel and the uh, square right on the top of the building. It's uh, on Main Street in downtown Lakeland. And that's how you find lodges. Uh, 
uh, Olaness Wright Lodge in Plant City, Florida, is one of the largest in this area. And again, its building is sitting right in the middle of Plant City, and it's got the big sign on the front of it. Uh, now, if you can't find a lodge in your area, simply you'd have to go on, get on the computer and find the Grand Lodge, which is located in Jacksonville, and they answer their email quite readily. Or if you want to write them a letter, they'll answer your letters. They're very responsive to inquiries because they know that's the only way people are going to find out about masonry is by inquiring because they're not allowed to go out and solicit membership. Okay. So then if, uh, you know, we have an ancestor in Pennsylvania uh, in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, and somehow, and actually just as I said, the family story uh, for my Wilcox family was that the lodge meetings were held in the house so you know some kind of inkling that our ancestor may have been a mason and then we have to do some digging uh it sounds like to to find out where the records might be pennsylvania you simply go to the state uh uh, the state headquarters i believe it's philadelphia is where the state headquarters are and ask them if there was a lodge at the location of peterborough pennsylvania whatever the name of the town was and they have a way of knowing what was the nearest lodge to that town, or was there a lodge in that town? And they can tell you more about it from that point. Okay, very good, very good. So is there anything else you would like to add about the records before we move on? Well, I think it's the fact that they're open, uh, and as in any organization, records get lost, some people, whenever they reach out to a, a grand lodge and the records aren't there, they get all upset because somebody's misplaced records or they've lost records. So be thankful if you find a lodge whose records have been preserved because you're going to get a lot of information from them. And if your ancestor happened to move further up the, the uh, degree work, other than just Master Mason, the Blue Lodge, as it's called, you're going to find a great deal more about them in the individual. Um, the the fact that they're there is important. Okay. All right. And actually, in, in addition to the records, this this uh, brings to mind another question. Were, for example, my what, my ancestor Doris Bascom, was he given any ring or insignia or you know something? Should should we be aware of that? In possibly jewelry, when we're looking through. Um, some you know something from our ancestors. The only ring that you are ever given is when you going up to the level of thirty third, thirty second degree. You're given a gold ring, and on it it has a uh, a triangle symbol of the uh, Scottish rite or York rite, whatever you're talking about. It's a very small triangle on that ring, and mine is somewhere buried in my bedroom and with my other Masonic material, my I have my cap for my 30, 32nd degree in there. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's not a fez, but it's a, a, a round cap that fits over your head, and it has the 32nd degree symbol on the front. And as far as jewelry goes, that's going to be it. Now, people can buy rings. They can buy a Masonic ring, and I've seen some of those Masonic rings that probably could go into the thousands of dollars because they're adorned with uh, all kind of jewelry, all kind of uh, gems, either diamonds or or whatever. And uh, they wear it 
opposite their wedding ring usually, on the other hand uh, from their wedding ring. And some of them are fabulous, really fabulous. These people who who belong to these club organizations do love to flaunt it, and, and they love to let everybody know that you can see it on their hand. You can see the, the double-headed eagle, which is the, the symbol of uh, the 32nd-degree masonry. Okay. And and were, uh, like, third-degree masons, were they given a certificate Yes, you're given, you're given a, a certificate. It's in a leather folder, and I've got mine tucked into my mother's family Bible in my bedroom in a drawer. And it's a... It's a... a a uh, nice little certificate that's signed by the officers of the lodge whenever you pass your third your third degree. Okay, all right. Uh, so you mentioned uh, Woodman of the World uh, earlier in the show. One of my grandfathers, my uh, Lamac grandfather, was a demolay when he was a teenager, and uh, my Wilcox grandfather was a member of the Odd Fellows. Uh, my great-grandmother, Esther Hawkins, was an Eastern Star, and I actually have an Eastern Star insignia that, that she had. So how are these groups different from Masons? Well, Eastern Star is the female side of the Masonic Lodge. They're, they are the other side of the, the I guess you call the term distaff side of Masons. A demolay is the youth that eventually work up into the the lodge. They start out uh, with their young activities, their their youth activities. I tried to get my son into demolay, but he I could never interest him to do it. We do have a demolay chapter here in Lakeland that some of the members bring their children in, and some of them last on up into masonry. You have to be 18 years old to go into the regular lodge, uh, but the uh, the Woodman of the World is a, is a similar chapter, similar organization, uh, than, but it's, it has nothing to do with masonry. Uh, there's a, the Odd Fellows is just like it sounds. Uh, they're Odd Fellows as far as they are, they are different than other people, uh, and they they are people who do a lot of good work just like the Masons do. And they have their their meetings, their chapters, and their lodges. I've never dug too much into them. Uh, they they um, sometimes will buy cemetery lots within a major cemetery, and Odd Fellows members are buried in those particular lots in a cemetery. Okay, and then how about Knights of Columbus? I don't know much about Knights of Columbus. Uh, I don't know. It may have more of a religious overtone than, uh, and I, I believe, don't take me at the gospel, but I think it has an association with Roman Catholicism. I, I uh, think so, too. Um, so that may be, have I been their that, answer to to Freemasonry. Yeah, there is, a, there is an organization uh, not too far from our Lakeland General Hospital that has a big building, and it's uh, Knights of Columbus. Um, and then, of course, then there's Knights of Pythias, and uh, those, like you say, it may have been their answer to to the Masonic Lodge when they were not allowed to or did not want to join the Masonic Lodge. Okay, all right. So, uh, as we uh, are closing our show, is there anything else you'd like to add about uh, Freemasonry and its records? 
Well, I think that is probably one of the few organizations that has made a concerted effort to preserve their records. Uh, of course, as I said, sometimes records get lost, misplaced, stolen, or whatever. Uh, uh, the Grand Lodge building in Jacksonville might burn, and that would be a m major nightmare. But they've made a concerted effort to preserve their records. And, and I said about our lodge going dark, the records went to the neighboring lodge, and years later it came right back to the same lodge. And I was able to go through and transcribe all those records uh, where they were very poor handwriting. I was able to go through and transcribe them all into uh, into a typewriter. At that time, I didn't have computers. And was able to give them back to the lodge as so they could be easily read. And um, I know many of the men around here who are gone on uh, I knew them when they were living, and they were men of stature. They were men who were of quality. They were not uh, people who went out and got drunk on Saturday night and went to church on Sunday morning. That, this didn't happen with them. They were quality men. And sure, a, a good sure. example of this, not, not so quality, was a man I knew growing up in my high school that had done some ill deeds in his earlier life, and it, it kept him out of the lodge. He, matter of fact, he was excluded from the lodge. He was disbanded out of the lodge completely because of his lifestyle. Okay. Uh, that's just it. Just happens. Sure, sure. And I do want to actually tag on to your your mention of the transcriptions. Look for transcriptions as well uh, for of the Masonic lodge records because uh, for the Johnstown. Lodge in the 1760s and 1770s, those records have been transcribed. Uh, and from what I understand, the Lodge has the original uh, records, and then there is a transcription out there as well. Um, so look for those. So uh, before we uh, wrap up and I ask my, my last questions of Alvi, I do want to uh, point out that the uh, FGS conference is happening at the end of August and beginning of September. I am going to be speaking on September 2nd uh, with a uh, New York Genealogical and Biographical Society sponsored talk. It's the New York Gateway Immigration, Emigration, and Migration. Uh, so uh, FGS is going to be in Pittsburgh this year. Uh, and early bird registration closes on July 1st. Uh, so take oh. advantage of the early bird registration. And, I wish uh, I could go, but I can't leave my wife alone anymore. She has a lot of medical issues, and um, if a serious situation requires I leave her for a few days, I have her sister come here from Texas and stay with her. But um, that's just the way life is. There, yes. It has its ups and its downs. Yes, yes, and, and, and we're missing you at the conferences. As I said, I met, I met you first at one of these conferences. Um, I also want to point out that on October 7th, I'm going to be uh, speaking at the Western New York Genealogical Society's uh, all-day seminar, uh, co-sponsored by the uh, New York Genealogical and Biographical Society as well. Josh Taylor will be there, Blaine Bettinger will be there, and a few other speakers. Um, so that is October 7th in Buffalo. And then October 21st, in uh, out, actually outside Syracuse, I'll be uh, doing an all-day seminar for talks at the Central New York Genealogical Society's conference. Um, Wonderful. So, uh, so. I know you all will have a blast because those things <laughs> are just... <laughs> I, can, I can still recall all of the many times that I went to these meetings and uh, these uh, these conferences. And uh, the first one I went to, I think, was uh, about 1974, 75, along in there. And it just 
snowballed. I could never get away from it. It gets in your blood. It gets in your blood. <laughs> it does. It does very much so. Uh, so, Elvie, as we close the show, tell us about your own ancestry. You, you told us how you got involved with your wives. Uh, now, how about how about your own ancestry? Well, my own ancestry, uh, my my paternal Davidson has been a very difficult road to hoe because when I get back to my great grandfather. Everything he told about his life to the public was a lie, and it has stonewalled in into a, a wall I cannot penetrate. Uh, and we've had five professional genealogists work on it, and they can't get any further than me. Now, my mother's side of the family, which is right, W-R-I-G-H-T, goes all the way back to early Virginia, and there was a lot of names and in interspersed middle names that tell me that they were people of quality, one of them had a middle name of Bradford. Guess where that came from? Uh, so my Wright family goes all the way back to early Virginia, and uh, they they were in the Revolutionary War. Uh, I have a number of other lines. My my father's mother was a law, L-A-W, which I've been able to trace all the way back to uh, early Scotland. They, they came over in 1722 and settled in Franklin County, Virginia, and were people, who, farmers, but they were good, good quality people. They were most of them were very staunch Baptists. They migrated on down into North Alabama and established a lot of the churches in North Alabama. They were there before statehood. Uh, matter of fact, 1809 they arrived, and shortly thereafter, something happened called the War of 1812. They grabbed all the law men and shot them down to New Orleans to fight the British. So it's, uh, my family is as been in the South, I do not have any family that's north of the Mason-Dixon line. Not one. All right. All right. And is there any one ancestor who has called out to you as you're researching him or her? The Law family has been quite a... It, for a long while, it was elusive because I didn't know whether to look for LAW, LAWE, or LEWS, but I eventually grabbed on to them in Franklin County, Virginia, and was able to find vital records, uh, estates, and property records, that, and even found their crossing of the pond in 1722 when they came from Scotland. Now I'm back into Scotland, and I've got a lady over helping me with my Scottish side of it. Most interesting people, most interesting people. Okay. All right. Very good. Elvie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it has been wonderful finding out about uh, the Masons, uh, learned a lot more uh, about them and uh, the records that we might be able to find. So thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure. been my pleasure. Anytime I can help you, anytime. I hope this goes on sometime out in the future, but if it doesn't, so be it. We got in the last show. <laughs> yes, it, it, this is a milestone show. It is the last show uh, indefinitely, and uh, we'll we'll see if uh, the Forget Me Not Hour will be back. Um, so, thank you for joining me on the last show. You're quite welcome. Enjoy yourself right. and enjoy your your conferences up in New York. Thank you, thank you. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. Okay. Oh